Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Rob Port here on WDAY. 701-293-9000. That's your local number. Email talk at WDAY.com. 888-970-9329 is your toll-free number. Hey, you can tweet me, too, while I'm on, at Rob Port. Uh, we're going to get right into it. We're going to talk about a couple of bills today. Uh, one is regarding delivery of alcohol to a person under the age of 21. In a moment, going to be speaking with Fargo defense attorney Mark Freeze about that. He sees some big issues with that bill. Also coming up a little bit later in the program, the legislature is going to take another shot. And this has been a recurring issue both in the legislature and at the ballot box. Uh, they're going to take another shot at shared parenting. There was a bill. It was... Uh, in a committee for a hearing today, we'll talk with uh, one of the promo, pro, excuse me, proponents of that bill, Sean Casson, uh, a little bit later in the program uh, at 1.30. Plus, of course, your phone calls, emails uh, if you want to join in. But right now, let's talk about House Bill 1422. Uh, that bill would provide that delivery of alcohol to a person under the age of 21 by a person 21 years of age or older would be reclassified from a Class A misdemeanor to a Class C felony. Um, and there's some other problems with this as well. My uh, guest, Defense Attorney Mark Freeze, what's the problem with this bill, Mark? The biggest legal problem that I have, Rob, is the fact that it would require uh, law enforcement to make an arrest based on reasonable suspicion of the violation, which is a lower standard than probable cause. Probable cause is the Fourth Amendment standard required for an arrest, and it's the required standard under North Dakota law. So it lowers the burden of proof for an arrest, and then it would force the prosecution to prosecute the case, even if the search was unlegal or the confession obtained from the violator was illegal, and even in instances where the prosecution does not have probable cause to pursue it. So uh, the legislature here has basically, if this passes, has stepped in and said, law enforcement, you have no discretion, prosecution, you have no discretion, and notwithstanding hundreds of years of Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, we're going to lower the standard for arrest. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Do we do this in any other? I, I thought that was odd. I mean, the, the basic concept, and we can have a debate about this, whether or not it should be a felony uh, if you're over the age of 21 to deliver alcohol to someone under the age of 21. We can have a debate about that. But have, do we do this in any other part of law where we lower the standard for arrest and prosecution from probable cause to reasonable suspicion? I mean, is that common is this just out of left field where did this come from it's it's out of left field i'm i'm aware of no other provision of law that provides for this the north dakota supreme court as recently as a couple of years ago reiterated the principle that an arrest based on reasonable suspicion and not supported by probable cause violates the fourth amendment so this proposal as currently drafted is actually asking uh, for implementation of a law that explicitly violates the fourth amendment Okay, let's get into the question of, you know, because that that's that's obviously hugely problematic um, in, in terms of probable cause. And, and explain to this. I mean, is, let's let's delve a little deeper into that. Explain to us, those of us who aren't attorneys and don't understand, why is that probable cause standard so important? 
that historically, since the inception of our country and the adoption of the Fourth Amendment, um, law enforcement has been uh, prohibited from making arrests in certain circumstances. Um, they can't go out on a whim and arrest first and ask questions later. They have to have some quantum of evidence, just like a judge has to have a quantum of evidence before they can issue a search warrant, before the police can enter my house and, and look for evidence of a crime or to, to make an arrest. And that, that same standard for judges and the same standard for police has always been probable cause, which coincidentally is a very low burden, but an even lower burden is reasonable suspicion. Um, and as I indicated, reducing that constitutionally required burden will conflict with the Fourth Amendment, and any statute that conflicts with the Fourth Amendment will be struck down. So this is inviting a lawsuit is what's happening. All right. Now, let's get into the question of delivering alcohol to people under the age of 21, if, if you're over the age of 21. This one, it's currently a Class A misdemeanor. This goes up to a Class C felony. Uh, obviously, I, the, the, playing devil's advocate here for a minute, and I'm not, I'm not for this legislation, a lot of people out there are going to say, well, why shouldn't that be a felony? You know, why shouldn't that be a felony? That's a serious thing to give alcohol to someone under the age of 21. Why not? Well, first off, we do permit the uh, the provision of alcohol to minors if it's affiliated with a religious service. If uh, ultimately, if if consuming alcohol under the age of 21 is truly the ultimate evil, we should have consistent policies across the board, and we should prohibit the use of alcohol in conjunction with a religious ceremony. Uh, so this is inconsistent with with the notion that there can be exceptions that are made. I agree; it should be illegal. It should continue to be illegal to deliver alcohol to somebody under the the lawful drinking age, whatever the legislature establishes it. But the problem that I have is that when when you cast a net to fish for tuna and you cast that net too wide, you catch dolphins. The majority of people who are charged with delivery of alcohol to a person under 21 are not intending to cause some bad consequence. It's done inadvertently. It's done by mistake. They misread an application or they misread a driver's license when they're serving alcohol at a bar. And if that person who, uh, a busy weight staff member who improperly serves alcohol to a 20-year-old person who looks like they're 25 should not have the lifelong consequences that follow from a felony charge or a felony conviction. Because when we move that into, into the felony realm, that's a whole other thing. And especially in this digital age, that's something that's it's like a scarlet letter. I mean, it, it follows you wherever you go. You're, you're never going to be worse than a scarlet letter, Rob. I, every day I get calls from people who have had uh, felony charges or felony convictions in the past. They can't enlist in the military. They can't travel into Canada. They they can't possess a firearm. They they can't get housing. The rental companies in most large cities will not even rent an apartment to somebody who has a felony charge. They can't get student loans. They can't participate in higher education programs. Uh, if you look historically, felonies have been reserved for serious offenses like rape, robbery, murder, and burglary uh, and arson. I'm not suggesting that it's not wrong or that it's that it's appropriate to give alcohol to somebody who's prohibited, but it's not on the same level of offenses as those major crimes that have historically been felonies. Let me let me ask you another question, because this is happening in the context of our state struggling with the budget crunch, and then also, within that struggle, struggling with the fact that, that we're putting a lot of people in jail. Our, our prisons, our jails are overcrowded. There's there's a lot of people there, and we're we're looking at a lot of different policies and moving away from maybe criminalizing some things, I, I know in the realm of, of drugs, we're looking at maybe some lighter sentences, maybe more emphasis on treatment and, and less emphasis on incarceration. 
But yet here we have a situation where we're wanting to move something that is currently a class A misdemeanor to a class C felony. So if, if I get convicted of a class C felony, and I know sometimes it varies from case to case, how likely is it that I'm going to jail? I mean, what, what sort of, with, with your average class C felony conviction, what sort of jail time are we looking at? I, you know, I think it would take time for the system to adapt to this becoming a felony if this legislation passes. What I mean by that is judges who historically have provided suspended or deferred sentences and community services for this type of conduct would likely continue to do so, except in those instances where there's a connection to the delivery and a bad result. For example, if uh, a person 21 or over provides alcohol to an underage person who later drives, gets in a car accident and causes a death, they're going to be punished much more harshly. So I think it would take some time for the actual sentencing practices to catch up, except in those unusual cases. So the likelihood of prison is not that great. However, the possibility of prison exists, and anybody who's convicted of a felony faces being placed on supervised probation, which incurs an expense. Uh, they've got obligations to the court. Um, the, the, the cost here would be significant, even if there is not imprisonment. It seems, it seems like this is sort of running contrary. Is, is it fair to say that this sort of runs contrary to what we're trying to do in other areas of public policy, which is maybe get away from incarceration and, and just throwing the book at everybody and maybe moving more towards addressing some of the so I mean it, it seems like like this is just sort of going upstream from from the place where North Dakota is heading which I think is generally a, a pretty healthy place where we're going to you know instead of instead of the goal being seeing how many people we could put in prison it being well why are people doing this and how can we maybe help them not do this in the future this just seems contrary to all of that is that fair to say I, I think that's a very fair assessment, and I, you know, I think it's a diversion of limited resources that we have. We're very constrained now. Our court systems are exceedingly busy. Our probation officers are very busy. Our law enforcement officers are exceedingly busy, and this provision, which requires that they make an arrest, irrespective of whether the arrest would be lawful or not, simply burdens the entire system to force uh, you know, a, a, a felony-type charge on uh, conduct that really does not warrant felony-type attention. Well, it sounds like a bad law. Hopefully it doesn't pass. It's HB 1422. I believe the uh, sponsor is Chuck Damption uh, from District 10. He's a Republican. Uh, so something to keep on your radar. Mark, thanks for your time. You bet. That's Mark Freeze. I'm Rob Port. This is the Rob Report on WDAY. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. All right. Uh, let's get to some things uh, from the blog. A, a little bit of breaking news this afternoon. Uh, we had heard that NDHU President Dean Brashani was going to be, uh, he, he had applied for a job over in Ohio at a university there, much larger university than North Dakota State University. Uh, he had made it to one of, was it five? I think it was one of five finalists, one of six, something like that, somewhere in that ballpark. Uh, he was one of the finalists, put it that way. Uh, news this afternoon is that he's withdrawn. Uh, and he is saying, according to a report from Patrick Springer, uh, which went up this afternoon, uh, he is withdrawing because supposedly everybody back here in North Dakota just thought he was doing a wonderful job. Uh, he says, I'm, I'm quoting in this Patrick Springer, he, uh, Brashani sent out a, a campus-wide email this afternoon, uh, and it was picked up by Patrick Springer. According to the email, I quote, after notifying the State Board of Higher Education members and the Chancellor, I quickly heard back from many with messages echoing those of Chancellor Hagerod who offer, who offer appreciate that you're decided to stay 
uh, with NDSU and look forward to continued work uh, together to build a stronger university system at NDSU. Uh, Brashani continued, I believe their strong support will be critical as we move forward, and it is greatly appreciated. Um, and so that's, I mean, that, that's essentially his argument, is that uh, he withdrew because he decided to stay here in North Dakota. And, and honestly, I don't, I don't buy it. And I don't know. I suppose people will accuse me that this is just me hating on, on Dean Brashani. Uh, I'm certain there are people that wanted him to stay. I think he's built up something of a cult of personality. Uh, they're on campus in some ways, uh, with, with some members of the, uh, the, you know, the, the rabid bison, uh, sports fans. But I, I could tell you the people I talked to in the university system, a lot of them, a lot of the people in the legislature, they were really hoping this guy got that job in Ohio and went somewhere else. And I was rooting for him to get the job in Ohio too. Uh, if only so he can maybe get a new start in somewhere else and maybe not repeat some of the mistakes he made here in North Dakota. But if you're... If you're over in Ohio and you're thinking about whether or not to hire this guy, are you going to lean his direction with all the baggage that's out there with the transparency problems, the the uh, feuds with the legislature, the feuds with multiple chancellors and and multiple iterations of the State Board of Higher Education? You know, I, I wouldn't blame them for going in another direction, and I think Bershani just preempted them and decided he would withdraw rather than have it you know be out there that he was passed over. Um so for now, I guess he's staying, and he's going to be he and his uh, three hundred and forty-five thousand dollar a year salary are going to continue to be North Dakota's problem. I wish it weren't true, but I guess it's I guess that's the way it is. Seven zero one two nine three nine thousand eight 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 nine seven zero nine three two nine. Email talk at wday.com. Also, other news, you know, after um, we've been here in North Dakota, we've been lectured for months from environmentalists who came here to protest the Dakota Access Pipeline. Uh, you know, we've had them, you know, they've called us racist, you know, North Dakota is a horrible place and the oil's gonna, the pipeline's gonna destroy the environment. Well, they're, they're, they're continuing to clean up the camps down there. And according to a report, it's estimated that it's going to take 250 trucks filled with trash, filled with litter to clear the camp, 250 trucks. Just, just let that sink in for a minute. These are environmentalists. And they left behind 250 trucks worth of trash. Unbelievable. I, it's, it, what's remarkable is that, to me, that should be national headlines. Right? These, these sanctimonious extremists descend on our state. They attack our law enforcement. They run roughshod over our laws. They set construction equipment on fire. They riot. And they say they're doing it all because they're honoring the earth. They're doing it all to protect the environment. And then they leave. And what do they leave behind? 250 truckloads of garbage. Thanks a lot. It's, it, it, I, I don't know what else you can even say about it at this point. And, and the thing is, is everybody knew this was going to happen, right? I mean, if you if you'd said it. A few months ago, you probably would have been called a racist or something, or you would have had national media reporters rolling their eyes at you because that doesn't fit the narrative. And yet here we are. It's February. Somebody's got to clean up out there because eventually that area is going to flood, particularly this year, given the amount of snow that area has gotten. And here we are. Got to clean up 250 truckloads of trash out of the protest camp from the environmentalists 
who are also concerned about our environment, who are also concerned about protecting Mother Earth. And by the way, guess who's doing it? It's it's the uh, the Standing Rock Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, that's the tribe. Uh, and it's also Morton County. Morton County Emergency Manager is out there cleaning up. Which is also amazing, too. I, I'd like to know... Which GoFundMe site should we send the bill to? Right? I mean, these activists raised millions, millions to bail one another out of jail and do everything else. Where where, where do we send the bill for the cleanup, for the 250 truckloads of garbage that they had to haul out of there? That's what I'd like to know. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, new shared parenting legislation down in Bismarck. That's coming up the next segment. Of course, you can join 701-293-9000, That's a toll-free number. Email talk at WDAY.com. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back. Rob Report here on WDAY, 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDAY.com. It's been a hot issue uh, over the last few years, last few legislative sessions, last through you know, a few election cycles, putting the issue on the ballot, uh, shared parenting. Are North Dakota's current, uh, you know, child custody, parenting laws, family laws fair? Uh, there's a group of North Dakotans who don't think so. So far, they haven't been able to win many political battles, but they're staying at it in Bismarck today. There was a hearing before a committee on House Bill 1392 introduced by Representative Tom Cading of Fargo. Uh, it's another shared parenting bill. Here to talk with me about it is shared parenting proponent, Sean Casson. Am I pronouncing your last name right, Sean? Is it Casson? Yes, that's correct. Thank you. All right. All right. Sean, tell us what's different about this bill, if anything. Yeah. Uh, well, we've already heard it today uh, during our committee hearing um, that it was uh, from the opponent's perspective, thinking that this is another attempt at what Measure 6 attempted to accomplish. Uh, Measure 6, obviously, being that uh, 2014 initiative that failed. Um, however, uh, I think there are some valid concerns that are raised from the Measure 6 debate. Uh, for instance, one thing that was talked about, uh, why people uh, were not in favor of it, talked about, you know, distance of parents. For instance, one parent lives in Minot, the other in Fargo. Uh, was the understanding of reading this that ballot initiative that that could be problematic. Uh, another concern that was raised is uh, could be children of special needs, uh, whether or not that parents would be able to meet those uh, special needs on that individual basis uh, for that child. Uh, so, so there were several uh, concerns that were raised, and I thought that they had uh, some strong validity to them. And when drafting this legislation, uh, Arnold Fleck took that into consideration. I, I reviewed it uh, as well. Obviously, uh, as you mentioned, Representative Tom Keating introduced it. Um, but Measure 6, uh, uh, I found that there was a lot of people that supported uh, the idea of shared parenting, um, but the issue was the language of it, and also that uh, uh, some felt that it was just too too broad, too vague. Um, so this bill has taken those concerns into consideration, implemented them, and addressed those. Uh, so here we have, uh, right now, tentatively, uh, it, for instance, we have a 50-mile uh, presumption that if you're outside the 50 miles, we're going to recognize that that distance might be too great. Uh, however, that uh, we recognize that that's an area of debate. Uh, the, the core concern is making sure that parents are going to be able to make it work. Uh, so I think that might be one thing that the committee uh, well, will me, consider if they're yeah. uh, considering passing. 
Well, let me let me let's get into that. Can, can you can you sort of list off the differences between because Measure Six obviously didn't pass in 2014, and as you said, there are, and, and I agree with you. I, I think there are people out there who support shared parenting. The problem is crafting laws that support shared parenting that don't go on to create even more problems. And I, I think that's maybe a fair criticism of what Measure Six was. So right. can, can you can you enumerate the differences between what is before the legislature now and what Measure Six was? Sure. Well, well, the one thing with Measure Six was uh, a lot of people thought uh, that it was going to mandate shared parenting, and as a matter of fact, I, uh, there was an op-ed that was uh, uh, placed in the forum and throughout other uh, newspapers in North Dakota that talked about that uh, if Measure Six would have passed, it would have uh, been mandatory in every case. Uh, that shared parenting 50-50 be awarded. Um, first of all, that that was incorrect. Uh, that was not a uh, that, that was a false statement. Um, it's a presumption, and there's a, a huge difference between a presumption and making something mandatory. A presumption is more or less just a burden of proof. It's just recognizing that it's more probable. Um, but with this, uh, so with this legislation, uh, first of all, it is not a mandatory measure. Uh, excuse me, a mandatory. Uh, piece of legislation. It is it is strictly a presumption. That presumption can be rebutted over a uh, a multitude of areas recognizing that those uh, there are cases where it's not going to be applicable. Uh, for instance, child abuse, child neglect, uh, parents uh, through you know suffering through chemical dependency issues that's going to be detrimental to the okay. child, not receiving treatment, um, not proper, uh, not taking proper okay, care of the so child. Okay, so it's it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not it's not mandatory. It's enumerated. Sure. It, it's it's not mandatory, and there are grounds on which you can say, well, you know, there's a presumption of shared parenting, but it's not going to work in this instance based on these grounds. That's a Correct. possible argument. Okay, so what else? Uh, well, uh, Measure 6 dealt strictly with just the notion of 50-50. Um, through, uh, through all the most recent social science research, uh, we have found that, uh, uh, first of all, um, many of the social scientists define shared parenting uh, not necessarily as 50-50. They don't exclude it, but they uh, uh, started off as at a 35% amount of parenting time. And that's where they have found that that's when children uh, benefit from the effects of shared parenting. Or on the flip side, if they're not receiving that 35% parenting time from an able, uh, willing, and fit parent, it's to their detriment. Um, there are vast studies showing just uh, how detrimental it is to be raised in a single-parent household um, and I can forward those on to you as well. But anyways, the point being is that's where uh, shared parenting starts, is that 35%. So that's where this legislation starts, is to reflect the findings and conclusions of social science. Uh, and it's, as, as a matter of fact, uh, the names out there, if anybody wants to look them up, so you can go on indiekidswin.org. Um, there's a, a link there talking about Dr. Richard Warshak, Dr. Linda Nielsen. Uh, you can find studies uh, uh, showing that there's 110 social scientists uh, around the world that have consensus that shared parenting uh, works in the vast majority and, and is beneficial to the children in the vast majority of cases, and only in a slight minority uh, does it not work. Uh, it's atypical when it doesn't work. Uh, so so we, back to your question here is that uh, the presumption is 35% and that the court, uh, I uh, forget the language uh, exactly, but more or less that the court should strive uh, for uh, you know, a true equal uh, uh, parenting uh, parenting plan, but the presumption is has a base of 35 percent, and that's to reflect of what the uh, uh, solid social science proves is that 35 percent threshold. Gotcha. 
Uh, any other differences? Uh, well, I, I just think that there was a lot of information that really wasn't uh, disseminated properly with Measure 6. Um, as I mentioned, that, uh, you know, there is, there, there's this notion that uh, children fare better if, out of a one-parent household out of routine instability. Um, and, and, again, that's a, something that came up in these op-eds. And, I, you know, I don't know whether or not uh, voters uh, trusted uh, op-eds such as that. It's very persuasive. Um, and it seems to make sense, uh, except that it, it's just not. And if you take that, uh, you know, one step further, um, out of routine and stability, I guess, then that would mean that it would be best just to cut off one parent altogether uh, from that child's life out of routine and stability. And obviously, a uh, common sense, that tells us absolutely not, uh, no way could that be beneficial. The studies tell us that that's detrimental, and no child would want to have their parent out of their life. Um, the inconvenience of uh, shared parenting, you know, going from one house to another, is absolutely minute compared to the benefits that come uh, that come along with uh, with shared parenting and, and having that parental child relationship uh, for those years. So uh, there's there's a lot of I think information that um, that was delivered to the public on Measure Six uh, that um, didn't accurately reflect what the true social sure. science is out there. Um, but I think that uh, the committee members today, I, I was think... very impressed by oh. uh, by their questions. They seem to be um, uh, very active, and uh, I, I thought that it went uh, very well this morning. Well, good. I was going to ask about that, because I, I think one criticism a lot of people are going to have, and that's why I wanted to focus on the differences in this proposal in Measure 6, is people are going to say, listen, we've had this debate. You know, We've had it multiple times on the statewide ballot. We've had it multiple right. times in the state legislature. Why... Mm-hmm. Why keep having this debate if it's just the same thing over and over again? And and what you're what you're saying is that this is substantially different from what was proposed in the past. It is. It's uh, and and the thing is too is that it's not just a, a North Dakota issue. It is a national issue. Um, the National Parents Organization gave North Dakota a D minus on their uh, uh, I think uh, I want to say their shared parenting efforts, and I think it's just to reflect that. Uh, shared parenting isn't happening enough. And I believe if the current system were in place, as is with these best interest factors, we wouldn't have such low marks. Uh, but we've seen other states take uh, uh, action. For instance, uh, Florida, just this last year, uh, overwhelming support to the legislature in passing uh, a, a shared parenting bill. Um, uh, however, it was found that the family law section down in Florida vetoed or excuse me, uh, lobbied uh, heavily to get Governor Scott to veto uh, that bill, and it was successful. We saw the same thing happen in Minnesota uh, yeah. a number of years ago. Um, however, Minnesota does have, a, uh, I believe, a presumption of 25%. So, yeah. so the current bill uh, that's before the House Judiciary Committee, the presumption is 35%. It's a 10% difference between Minnesota uh, and what we're going for but we're, it's reflective of the uh, current social science that gotcha. has the consensus of 110 right. social science. I want to break in here, Sean, because I want to get to a sure. caller. Dave's got a question for yeah. you. Go ahead, Dave. Good afternoon. I just tuned in, so maybe this has been brought up, but I had a question about shared parenting and child support issues. Okay. Um, recently divorced, uh, my ex and I agreed that we should share parenting. You know, Good to have both parents have somewhat equal time. And the schedule mm-hmm. that we agreed on, it was pretty close to equal, uh, turns out that she has the kids one night a month more than I do. I have them 13 out of 28 days, and I was told by lawyers on both sides and a judge that under North Dakota law, 
um, it is considered the majority parent gets full child support. So they are taking full child support out of my check, even though I have the kids almost virtually half the time. And I've heard other states prorate things like that. I was hoping North Dakota would be doing that, but they're not. <laughs> my, my, my understanding. Are on that. Yeah, my, well, my, well, I'll let Sean. But my understanding is that there's a big, there's a big incentive for the state to maximize the amount of child support that it collects because they have federal funding that's that's based on Correct. a formula that's based on that number. So a lot of times you see resistance from the state to changing that because if they do anything in a shit, you know, a, a, a you know where you have pretty equal time between the two parents that's going to reduce the amount of support paid that's going to reduce the amount of money that the state takes in as well is is there any sure. truth to that and, and does this legislation address child support at all thanks for the call dave yes uh yeah that was a, a topic of discussion this morning as well uh representative shannon Rohrs jones i thought uh asked a a great question to mr fleck um and and i'm not a a family law attorney so i'm just going to try to go off of memory uh, of exactly the discussion, but uh, one question that was raised by Representative Boris Jones was whether or not uh, this would have a retroactive effect um, on, uh, say, for instance, uh, a past due child support where uh, a uh, you know a mom is getting child support and all of a sudden this bill passes, is she now going to owe uh, the father uh, back child support because of this? And it is not the intent of this legislation to alter uh, any child support. Uh, awards. Uh, the focus is on uh, strictly the uh, shared parenting issue. Um, however, um, I believe Representative Candy did mention that for the majority of, you know, anywhere from 90 to 95 percent of the cases, he does not believe the child support will be affected. Uh, if it is, it'll be uh, very minimal. But uh, Mr. Fleck did comment on, I believe it was, uh, Dave, uh, his comment of this uh, 51 percent, 49 percent type of agreement where uh, even though uh, that you are with the child uh, a substantial amount of time, the full amount of child support is still being uh, extended to the other parent. But we do not, this, this what is, uh, bill well, does last, not alter last, child support guidelines. Last, last question for you, Sean, and we got to make it quick because we got to go. Thanks for the call, Dave. What, um, what, if anything, does this legislation do as far as child support? I'm, I'm sorry, one more time? What, if anything, does this legislation do as far as child support? Well, the uh, the child support uh, is just recognizes that uh, uh, there, there's language in there that a uh, each parent will be responsible for caring uh, or providing a home for the child uh, exactly 50 percent of the time, and I believe that that is supposed to be reflective of child support guidelines. Um, but I can tell you that uh, that it does not alter uh, child support guidelines. Um, it is uh, it is I believe it's to reflect anyways that. Uh, there is an obligation on both parents in order to be able to provide, and obviously it takes finances to provide for the child. So I believe the language that's in there is just going to reflect uh, that, right. um, that both parents are going to need to have that household, and well, uh, it's going to take gotcha. uh, take money okay. to raise them. I, I I think I've got the answer, Sean. Thanks. I got to go to a break. We went way over. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. That's uh, Sean Casson. It's uh, legislation is. Well, I had it in front of me. House Bill 1392, uh, introduced by Representative Tom Kading.